Good morning. <laughs> How's everybody today? Good. Um, I have a question for you. What is your favorite food? What? Pizza? Peaches? What is it? Chocolate. Ooh, chocolate. Spaghetti. Hmm? Chocolate spaghetti. Ooh. I did hear bread. Bread. Yes, bread. Now, here's the next question for you. Think of that favorite food. How would you feel if that was the only food you could eat for the rest of your life? That one thing. Nope. Nope. Just the way it is. Whatever you thought of when I asked you what your favorite food was. If it was pizza, it's always going to be the same pizza. If it was spaghetti, it's always going to be the same way. If it was bread, it's always going to be the same bread. Is that okay? Yeah, maybe. Depends on what your favorite food is. If your favorite food is kind of nicely balanced, like maybe it's a salad that has protein and vegetables and maybe some fruit in there, eh, not so bad. You could probably live on that. But if you picked uh, chocolate or ice cream, uh, after a few days, you might not really want to eat those, huh? You might get a little tired of it. You don't think so now, but a steady diet, if that's the only food you would eat, I think our bodies wouldn't like that too much. Our bodies need different kinds of foods. They need fruits and vegetables and proteins and dairy and all those good things so that your eyes work well and your bones grow well and your muscles all work. And we need all of those things. So, bread is a pretty important staple in our diets, though. Whether we eat it as bread with a sandwich or bread as garlic bread with our spaghetti or um, maybe you put that Nutella chocolatey stuff on your bread or maybe you put uh, hmm? bagels, crackers. All those things are kind of in the bread family. So, yeah, bread. So then I was thinking, well, Jesus said a man cannot live on bread alone. I don't know. That's what they used to give prisoners, wasn't it? Bread and water? Yeah, and they, they survived, I guess. Not too well. And then I thought of something that I had since I was probably, I don't know, how old are you back there? Eight? That's about when I had this. This is something from when I was in Sunday school. It's really old. It's kind of falling apart. In fact, I had to staple one back on. But when I was growing up, Psalm 119, verse 11, was a really important verse for us. It says, Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against God or against thee. Um, so we learned Bible verses. And every time you learned a Bible verse or, or passage, like I have the Lord's Prayer, the creation story, Psalm 23, Psalm 100, the Christmas story, Psalm 1, this is John 3.16. Um, every time we learned one from by heart, from memory, uh, we got a thing on our, our ribbon. I think I lost a few because I think it was full, but, uh, but that's cool. But that isn't enough, is it? 
we just memorize a few scriptures? And then I thought, well, how else can we hide God's word in our heart? I mean, literally, I can't shove this inside of me. But the more I read it, the more I study it, the more I pray, and the more I sing, and the more I worship, the more it's going in there. Some of you may have your Bibles on your phone. That might fit a little easier, and you can take it with you. This is kind of bulky to carry around, so carrying it around on your phone is a little easier. But once you have it inside your heart, it's always there. All right, so I asked you about your favorite food. If you could only have one book to read for the rest of your life, which book would you choose? The Bible, right? Because it's got everything in it. Um, Somewhere I heard that Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E. Okay? So we need to know the stuff that's in here. We need to get it inside of us because that's the only way we're going to be able to stand up to the tempter. It's the only way we're going to be able to worship truly if we have God's word inside of us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, your spoken word, your flesh in Jesus. We thank you that we can internalize. We can put it in our hearts and carry it with us and share it. Because once we have it, it's easy to share. So we thank you that although our bodies need food, our spirits need you, need your word. And we thank you that you have given it to us. So we ask in Jesus' name that you would help us to internalize your word so that we can continue to worship and to share. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray again. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to celebrate your sacrifice for us and to reflect on it as we hear from your word um, from the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you will help us to hear you clearly in his name. Amen. A bunch of you this week told me that you were big fans of the title of today's sermon, um, which I had no trouble writing. The sermon itself was a little trickier. But um, if you don't recognize this phrase, I do not think that word means what you think it means. It comes from The Princess Bride. And people who love that movie love that movie. And so those of you who came to me beforehand, I, <laughs> I think we're all, we're all on Team Princess Bride. Um, but I'm curious if any of you have a guess as to what the word is in this context that I'm referring to. We're in church. Take a stab at it. <laughs> Scripture, right. Okay, so it's possible, we know this, right? And Barb kind of alluded to it. Um, It's possible to know the scripture on some kind of head level and not really know what it means, right? And today um, we're going to see some characters in our continuing story of Jesus that that might apply to. Since the first verse in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has been making the case that the story of Jesus, and actually 
Jesus himself, is a continuation and fulfillment of the story of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is God's Word. We think of the Gospel of John as the one where Jesus is referred to as the Word of God, but actually in the Gospel of Matthew, even though Matthew doesn't come out and say Jesus is the Word, that's kind of his underlying message this whole time. He is implying or indicating that Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God. And in this passage, he hints at it even more strongly than he has been up to this point. He still doesn't come right out and say it, but he's he's hinting at it the whole time as we see this group of different characters, some of whom seem to have a better grasp on what the, the Word is and, and some of whom don't. They all know it, but they don't necessarily all know what it means or how or how it means what it means, or how to use it. So first we have John the Baptist. And this is kind of a switch because we were, you know, Jesus was a baby in the first two chapters, a little kid, and then he, Joseph brings him and Mary to Nazareth, and presumably Jesus grows up, but he doesn't tell us about that. And that's the last we hear of Joseph, son of David. But And, so, and then all of a sudden, John the Baptist shows up on the scene. John the Baptist, we know from the Gospel of Luke, is Jesus' cousin, but Matthew doesn't bother to tell us that because for the points that Matthew's trying to make, that detail is kind of irrelevant. What matters to Matthew is John the Baptist's fashion sense. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. Also his diet. His food was locusts and wild honey. I bet none of you picked that as your favorite food to eat forever. <laughs> when Barb asked you that question. Matthew's also interested in the fact that John the Baptist drew a crowd. People went out to him in the wilderness, no less. That wouldn't have been super convenient. From Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Interestingly, this echoes a little bit Jesus' great commission at the end of this gospel when Jesus tells people to go from Jerusalem to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Why is John drawing such a giant crowd, do you think? Yes. I was hoping someone was going to say they thought he was a weirdo and they wanted to see the crazy guy. Um, and that might have been why they might have thought that if all of those details that we just mentioned hadn't been combined with the fact that John was preaching two things. Repentance and the kingdom of heaven. And those two things combined with the fact that he dressed weird and he ate weird stuff and he lived in the desert pointed to the word of God. More obviously, actually, than Jesus was so far and even in some ways later. The clothes and the food reminded people of Elijah, the kind of crazy prophet in the Old Testament who did similar things. And um, the, the Hebrews were kind of expecting there was going to be some sort of return of Elijah. So here's this crazy guy yelling stuff about God in the desert again, wearing strange clothes. Maybe this is him. Also, this, the way that he was preaching repentance and the kingdom of God 
identifies him with a prophecy of Isaiah's, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And this was actually, this is actually quoted in our passage. That verse in Isaiah is at the beginning of a whole section in Isaiah, which I mentioned in our Good Friday sermon that was only online, but um, it's about the suffering servant, and it's a number of chapters, starting with chapter 40, I can't remember where the end point of it is, um, prophesying some sort of character, messianic character, sort of mysterious character, who is known as the suffering servant, and so it's significant that this prophet-like strange dude in the desert is embodying this voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He actually identifies, in some of the other Gospels, he identifies himself as that person, that preparatory voice. He's in the wilderness. That in itself is a prophetic detail. Elijah spent some time in the wilderness, but also Moses, who is the greatest of the Israelite prophets, he spent a ton of time in the wilderness. He didn't actually get out of the wilderness after he took the Israelites out of Egypt. And the law of God was given in the wilderness. So people want the kingdom of God at this point. They have, the Israelites have gone through a lot by the time John the Baptist is here and there is a lot we talked during advent about all the expectation that was being built up for this messiah and for the coming kingdom of god and the people were ready and so they they see this prophet guy in the wilderness he's talking about the kingdom of god okay sign me up let me get out there i'm going to do whatever it takes and they know that the reason that their people have been through exile and various levels of captivity to all different nations is related to the fact that they were not very well able to keep the word of God. So when John says repent, they're like, okay, clearly we're, we're not doing this right. So yes, we're going to repent. Now we know that from the story of Jesus, because we're somewhat familiar with the story of Jesus, if we're here, um, we know that there were different ideas of what the kingdom of God was going to look like and who the Messiah was going to be. And that's, that was the fact here too, but there still was this real consciousness that they needed to repent and get themselves right with God so that this, so that God's kingdom would come. The Pharisees we've mentioned here before had an idea that if everybody in Israel could somehow completely, perfectly fill the law, fulfill the law all together at the same time, that would trigger, God would finally say, okay, here we go. And so that's actually one of the reasons why later um, Jesus gets such a hard time from the Pharisees about his, the way that he observed or didn't, according to them, the Sabbath, because they just didn't want anyone to mess up these commands, these laws of God, because they were just hoping that the Messiah was going to come. So repentance and the kingdom of God go together logically. John is announcing that the old order, empire, which we've been calling it, and all of the people associated with it, tied to it, are going to get burnt up. So change your citizenship while you can, you guys. 
change your citizenship from empire to kingdom right now. That is why it is not really surprising that not only did all the regular people go out to hear John the Baptist, but so did the religious leaders. Even the Sadducees, and especially the Pharisees, they would go out to hear Jesus because they want to see for themselves, is he really fulfilling scripture? Probably, especially the Pharisees are a little excited about this. If this is legit, like, great. You know, maybe, maybe things are finally going to start happening. So that part is not surprising. But what is surprising, if we were first century Jews reading this gospel for the first time, and maybe we had heard a little bit about Jesus, but we had just heard about it from religious leaders who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, we would think, yes, of course they went to hear John the Baptist, we, but we would be surprised when we got to John's response to them. He's not very polite. Okay, snake babies, time to clean up your act. <laughs> we don't know, I mean, we do know because we know the story, but if we didn't know the story, up to this point, we don't have a real reason yet to think that the religious leaders are the bad guys in any way. They are the religious leaders. They must have some connection to God. They know God's word better than us normal people. And they haven't, honestly, they haven't encountered Jesus as an adult yet. So they haven't had to make a decision about what they think about him. But even though that's true, John the Baptist knows that these guys have a stake in empire. Most of them got their power through, I mean, it might have been hereditary too, but most of them got their power through means that, the world uses, not through godly means, and repenting for them would cost them too much. And he doesn't believe they're going to do it. So he doesn't want to baptize them. He knows that they know the word of God, but that it doesn't mean what they think it means. So he tells them basically, don't try to play the Abraham card. They, he says, don't say that you're children of Abraham. That's not going to do you any good. It's not about that. It's about whether you actually understand and are living according to the ways of the kingdom. It's interesting that he says this. Matthew has already established for us that Jesus is the one Jew who can most legitimately claim Abraham as his father. Chapter 1 is this whole big deal about how he's descended from Abraham. And chapter 2 is kind of a big deal we saw last week about his being a representative of the peoples that God intended to bless through the children of Abraham, through the covenant with Abraham. So now that, that sort of closes out this Abraham piece for now. And now Matthew is going to link Jesus to Moses. Jesus shows up and suddenly John has someone else that he doesn't want to baptize but for the totally opposite reason. He won't baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they haven't repented. They haven't given up the perks of empire. They haven't understood the word. He won't baptize Jesus because Jesus never cooperated with empire in the first place. He doesn't need to repent. He is the fulfillment of the word that the, of the very kingdom that John is prophesying about. But Jesus says, 
sort of it sort of implies, yeah, you're right. I don't need to. I don't need to repent. But this is still the right thing to do. He says, this is how we are going to fulfill all righteousness. For him, for Jesus, being baptized is not about repenting from unrighteousness, but fulfilling righteousness, God's word. In baptism, Jesus was making public his obedience to the will of God. This is what we do when we're baptized, when we repent and are baptized. Um, D.A. Carson says, at this point, Jesus must demonstrate his willingness to take on his servant role and identify himself with the human race. So Jesus is king, and the whole point of the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is the king of the world, specifically of the Jewish people. But it's an upside-down or right-side-up kingdom, and so the king becomes the prophesied servant who becomes the prophesied king. It kind of all jumbles around. Sandy was calling this a Mobius strip, these sermons. You know, if you don't know what those are, we'll talk about that some other time. But <laughs> um, it just kind of loops around and around and around and around, and everything interconnects. Jesus is fulfilling everything. So the voice of one calling in the wilderness, called in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and the, and the Lord, the servant in Isaiah, showed up. In his baptism, Jesus is basically committing to what we celebrated in communion a few minutes ago. He is fulfilling all righteousness. He is identifying himself with those of us who actually have to repent and be baptized. And as soon as Jesus comes up out of the water, the rest of the Trinity shows up, and they are confirming the word. They are confirming that this is the righteousness that needs to be fulfilled. The Father speaks the confirming word. He says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And Carson says again, he, point, he points out that for 400-ish years between the end of the Old Testament and this point right here, God has been doing things among his people, but as far as scripture is concerned, God has been silent. This right here, when Jesus comes out of the baptismal water, is when God speaks again. And he's speaking his son. This is my son. I love him. He's great. I'm super happy with him. And while the Father is speaking, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus to be with him, to empower him to do what he has just publicly committed himself to doing, which is first and foremost to face and overcome the powers of empire through the word. So, the spirit, in this chapter it says the spirit led him into the, de into the wilderness. In a couple of the other gospels it says it sent him or drove him into the wilderness. He was compelled to go into the wilderness. That doesn't sound fun. But, think about this. Remember we were, when we talked about atonement during Lent, um, we said how Jesus' baptism is symbolically linked to the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea, right? After the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, what happened? They went into the wilderness, exactly. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses was up on the mountain receiving the word, right? But meanwhile... The rest of the Israelites 
were breaking the word. <laughs> they were building a golden calf and dancing around it and doing all kinds of other worse things, probably. So Jesus passes through the Red Sea after, I mean, this was a number of years after, but it's immediately the chapter after, out of Egypt I have called my son, right? And he has fully and publicly identified himself. He's been identified by God, by the Father, with God, but he's identifying himself with us. And specifically, for Matthew's purposes, with the people of Israel. So he immediately goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And the question is, will he uphold and understand the word like Moses? Or will he fall into temptation like the rest of the Israelites? The whole ministry hinges on this. Jesus has not been in ministry before this. This whole chapter or passage that Mark read for us that we're looking at right now is the start of Jesus' ministry. And whether he is able to succeed in it or not is dependent on this. So here's the way that it connects to us, though. We also, because of Jesus, spoiler alert, because he passes this test, We'll get there in a minute. But because of Jesus, we can be released from Egypt. We can come out of Egypt. We can pass through the Red Sea of Baptism. But then the question for us, too, is what do we do in the wilderness? Because we will all hit wilderness. And for a lot of us, probably most of us, um, there will often be a little bit of a wilderness really, in fact, right after we're baptized. So many of us have been baptized before, and you might be able to remember if this happened to you, um, or maybe not, but I have seen it numerous times. For example, when I was a missionary in London, we used to have people who came from a Muslim background who would realize that Jesus was Lord, they would accept him as their Lord, they would get baptized, and in Immediately after their baptism, some type of crazy opposition would happen, or they'd get super depressed, or there would be some major discouragement. This happens over and over and over again, and it even can happen in our lives years after we've been baptized. If we have participated in a spiritually powerful experience, kind of like Elijah with the showdown with the prophets of Baal, he, he got depressed and discouraged immediately after that um, and frightened. This kind of thing happens all the time because, basically, the devil does not want us to succeed. He's upset that we have shown our commitment to God in a really upfront way. And temptation will come most strongly when we are weak and tired or when we're on a high. And baptism is usually both. So... Satan in this story comes at Jesus twice with, if you are the son of God, because God, the father, has just identified him as such, which could have been exhilarating for Jesus. So he comes at him with this at the same time that Jesus has not eaten for 40 days and is probably, probably hasn't slept that well either. And Jesus shows us 
what to do, how it's done when we face similar situations. Being baptized fulfills all righteousness only if we go forth from there doing word-embodying works of righteousness. Otherwise, it's just going through the motions. So far, historically speaking, Satan has succeeded among the human race by tempting us most effectively with things we need or that are already ours. And he does that here. This is how empire works. It promises you stuff that you need or that's already yours, and there's always a catch. And part of why this is Satan's tactics and why it is now empire's tactics is because Satan cannot create anything new. God is the creator. Satan is just a created being like us. He cannot make anything new. But the other reason why he does this is because it works. And the reason it works usually is when we don't know the word or when we know but don't understand or haven't taken into ourselves the word. Like Adam and Eve, they knew that God's word to them was don't eat from this tree. They apparently hadn't internalized it. And Satan said, you can be like God. They were already like God. God had made them in his image. That was their job. <laughs> but they thought they were missing something and they didn't know the word. They didn't understand the word. And so they disobeyed it. And the Israelites did the same thing when they built the golden calf. God had called them out for relationship with himself. And God takes Moses up on the mountain to give him the, the word for this relationship and they say, oh, well, we can't, we can't see God, so let's make something, because that'll make us feel better. That's how we're going to have relationship. So these temptations that Satan gives Jesus are how empire works. They pretend they've got your back until they have you where they want you. First one, tell these stones to become bread. You're the son of God, right? You've denied yourself enough. 40 days? Dude, that's a lot. You deserve this. Also, maybe you don't fully understand how this human things, thing works. You know, I've, I've, been, I've been messing with these people for a long time, so I understand. They need to eat. You're a human now, son of God. You, you need to eat something if you're going to do what you just signed on to do 40 days ago. You need the strength. You need some self-care. Okay, let's be clear. There's nothing wrong with self-care. There's nothing wrong with eating bread. <laughs> That's not the problem. The problem is Satan, basically. <laughs> basically, that's the problem. The problem is being offered something that you need or that is already yours on terms other than God's. And... Jesus knows that to, make, to do what Satan is suggesting here is to stop trusting God for his provision and to relinquish the commitment that he already made to fulfill what God has asked him to do. So, And he also knows that physical life without the spirit-empowered word is basically not life at all. So we can keep our bodies alive we can pamper ourselves, we can, eat, we can even eat healthy, we can 
you know, make sure that we're ne we never go hungry. If we do that, we're still not fully alive. We need the spirit-empowered word to live. Also, here's a funny thing. A little while from now, Jesus is going to miraculously make bread for a whole bunch of people in the wilderness. Obviously, there was nothing wrong with the actual act of it. And after he does that in the Gospel of John, he tells people he is the bread of life. He didn't have to make bread for himself because he's already it. <laughs> he's the bread of life. He is what we need, and he is the word. He is what we need. So he says, he quotes scripture, Deuteronomy actually, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God is the one that keeps us alive. God spoke us into existence. God is the one who sustains us. So, okay, that one didn't work. Throw yourself down from the temple then. If you're the son of God, let people know it. Do something flashy so they'll get it. Sure, your father spoke to you at your baptism. Now, get him to send a phalanx of angels to bail you out. That'll convince everyone. He'll do it. It is written. Thou shalt go viral. <laughs> that's not quite what he said, but, you know, that's basically the idea of this temptation. You need a, a little better PR, dude. You, you just had the father affirm you, and then you went into the desert. That's not how this works. This will get people's attention, though. So, notice in this temptation, Satan quotes scripture, too. He thinks he's all smart. Interestingly, he quotes a psalm. While Jesus, the whole time, every single temptation, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. Here's the significance of this. Both the psalms and Deuteronomy are in the Bible. As a whole, that, that's the word of God, right? The Psalms are inspired by God, but they function in a different way than the law of God does. They're poetry, and they are human expressions to God. Deuteronomy and the books of the law are God's expressions to humans. So you cannot use a Psalm in the way that Satan is using it. And, but... Satan doesn't care. This is what he does. He twists scripture, whether overtly like this or just kind of kind of underlyingly, and the promises of God for his own ends. Jesus is embodying the true meaning of the word of God by submitting to it when he says, it is also written, you who just quoted it is written at me, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Interestingly, he is actually... He's saying, don't test God. I'm not going to test the Father by jumping from the temple. But you could also read this as, I'm the Lord your God. Do not put me to the test. This is Jesus speaking. God is just, the Father has just identified him as his son. He's also saying in this, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Jesus, here's another interesting thing. Once again, this temptation that doesn't work, Jesus himself fulfills. Because in the Old Testament and in the letters of Peter, Jesus himself is the stone 
in the temple the people strike their feet against. Satan says, quotes this psalm saying, you won't strike your foot against the stone. Jesus is like, no, I won't. I'm, I'm that. <laughs> I'm that stone. Okay, so that one didn't work either. I will give you all the kingdoms on earth if you bow and worship me. This is the game. This is what Satan has wanted ever since he first rebelled against God in the first place to be greater than God and have God groveling before him. He doesn't say, notice this time he doesn't say, if you're the son of God at this point, because in this case, he doesn't want to remind Jesus that he is the son of God. Why would the son of God bow down before Satan? He doesn't want to remind Jesus that Jesus is united with the Father and the Spirit. Because the only way Satan could possibly ever win this game is if he could divide the indivisible trinity. That is the only hope he has. Satan has been granted temporary authority on earth. It's true. Because we gave it to him. And we keep giving it to him. And he's been hanging on to it with mafia-like empire tactics. But ultimately, he is still, even though he hates it, he is still a servant of God. He actually doesn't know what the Trinity has up the Trinity's sleeve. He doesn't realize, and the Bible tells us this, he doesn't know that he's going to actually be able to get Jesus on a cross, but that in doing so, Jesus is going to take the weight of our sin on himself and come back to life. Satan doesn't know that. Because he doesn't understand the word. He knows the word, but he doesn't know what it means. He doesn't understand the right-side-up ways of God. He doesn't understand that God, throughout Scripture, exalts the humble, glorifies through suffering, and rules through servanthood. But what he does know is God created this world for humans to rule, and he can see that God is pretty invested in this, apparently, because God has now become one of us. So he makes Jesus an offer he can't refuse. Look, I know why you're here. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. I'm in charge here, and clearly you want human beings to be in charge. Obviously, you're the ultimate human, so you would be the only one that would be worthy of this honor that I'm about to offer you. I will give you control over the whole empire. The only one you have to answer to is, is me. Good call, David. <laughs> this, however, is the most tempting of the temptations, most likely to Jesus and also to many, many human beings. You will be like God without God. The deepest souls, the ones who can't be tempted by fleshly comforts or the ones who can't be tempted by flashy fame, can still be tempted by the counterfeit offer of the authority that we were created for. Fortunately, Jesus knows the word and what it means, and he has a much clearer idea than Satan has of why he's here. All the way up to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus really didn't want to go through the whole suffering thing that he was going to have to face. This 
If he had capitulated to Satan right here, this would have been a great way out. Because the way of empire really is the easiest, quickest, most painless way of achieving power and greatness, and also of giving up the game entirely. It is the surest way to lose. The destiny of the human race and all creation absolutely depended on Jesus resisting this temptation because every single one of us, in one way or another, no matter what our lives look like or what our roles are or what our personalities are like, every single one of us have fallen to this temptation somehow. And if our sin splits us apart from God and from each other and from creation and from ourselves, just think what would have happened if God had committed this sin. If Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, had fallen for this temptation, he would have split God apart. And he would not actually have become the supreme earthly ruler that Satan was promising because he would have been under Satan's control. I don't actually think that probably anything could possibly exist if the Trinity split um, and Satan were in control because Satan was just created still. However, no matter how you think about it, just imagining that is horrific. Jesus would have known this, though, and the very fact that, Je that Satan leaves out Jesus' connection to the Father and the Spirit in this temptation makes that connection all the more glaringly obvious and all the more powerful. Jesus loves his Father. It highlights the faithful and delighting love the persons of the Trinity have for each other. And so Jesus gets mad. Get out of here, Satan. That is it. I am done with you. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There is not a chance in heaven, hell, kingdom, or empire I am bowing down to you. Not a chance. So Satan gets out of there. Luke tells us, though, the devil left him until an opportune time. This temptation continued to dog Jesus all the way to the cross. There were a whole lot of off-ramps he could have taken. Jesus actually, one of them comes through Simon Peter, and we'll probably see it in a number of weeks, maybe months. Um, and Jesus says something similar to him, get behind me, Satan, because that temptation not to go through with the crucifixion is the temptation, and it is satanic. But in the meantime, Satan leaves, and those angels that the devil tried to get Jesus to call down beforehand actually show up, and they minister to him. So Matthew is saying to the Jews, see how Jesus is fulfilling what we were called to do? Knowing the word, knowing what it means, embodying it. But this is for all of us, too. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit. It is the Spirit that gives the word power, and it is the Spirit that will build the word into our lives, that will help us to live what it means, to know what it means. Empowered by the Spirit, just like Jesus was in the wilderness, it is our call, too to be transformed by the word in such a way that it pours out of us when we're squeezed, like Jesus was in the wilderness. I want to just, before we go, encourage you to 
really take this seriously. We can't... We, it's possible to study the Bible and get nothing out of it because we're just reading it and it's something that we have to do. But there's absolutely no chance on earth that it's going to get in here and come out here if we don't spend time reading it. And if you... we. We have some Bible studies in the works. We have one that's already happening on Saturday. If you can make it to that, please do. Um, and as the other ones come up, we'll let you know. But in the meantime, I've posted Bible study questions online. I encourage you to take some time in your week on your own to read the passage ahead for the, the coming Sunday and do your own. See if you can answer the questions that I posted, but also ask your own questions. Get yourself a notebook and write down questions that come to mind. We can talk about this online. You can give me a call if you want to discuss something you're reading. If you need tips for how to have a, a quiet time at home, please ask me. Um, this is super important because we need to know the word and know what it means. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you love us and you wanted to be in relationship with us and you gave us your word and you really, really want us to know what it means so that we can live it, so that we can look like Jesus in the world and other people can be rescued from the power of empire and the devil and be freed to walk as citizens of your kingdom. We ask that you, by your spirit, will lead us into whatever it takes to get the word powerfully in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.